Hello there, I'm Christopher Lee and this, this is SITREP, SITREP, your Defence and Global Affairs Discussion Programme from BFBS Radio. You're very welcome. Uh, today, in the next 60 seconds, Germany, will Britain have to withdraw? If so, how does it do it? The MOD, too big, too much self-interest. Iraq inquiry, was the MI6 man careless with the truth? Iran, now we're worried, aren't we? North, Northern Ireland, the peace mm. illusion. And Christmas, good time for war, not peace. Uh, with me here at the SIPREP round table from University College London, Dr. Martin McCauley, John Dickey, the former diplomatic editor of the Daily Mail, from City of Uni University here in London, Dr. Rosemary Hollis, and from the Royal United Services Institute, its director, Professor Michael Clark. Now, today, uh, I think this morning, the Defence Secretary, Bob Ainsworth, has been uh, to the RUSI uh, in Whitehall. He was there to explain his thinking beyond the next stage of Britain's defence policy rethink. For the British services, this is probably the most important ministerial speech he's made in 2009, but I wouldn't mind betting that not many people can remember the others. Um, except perhaps you, Michael Clark, as the director of the RUSI. Mm. What, what was he saying today? He was quite interesting today, wasn't he? Yes, today he, he talked about um, Afghanistan, because he, he, every speech he has to give, give an update and, and talk about the positive things that he <coughs> believes are happening and that next year will be better. And there is some, I think there is some truth in that. Next year will be better. Whether it's good enough is a question. But really the emphasis mm. of the speech was on armed forces and society. He was talking about the relationship between the armed forces and wider society, acknowledging that that relationship is changing. He laid great stress on the responsibility which he said he feels and the Ministry of Defence feels to the armed forces as individuals. And he announced a series of initiatives that would help possibly to lock in the responsibility which the MOD owes to the service personnel. And the implicit message in this is, I want to lock this in before the Defence Review so that mm. it's locked in for a future government. Mm -hmm. That's, in a way, was his... That was what was in between the lines today. And I think that was appreciated by the audience. It's interesting that Afghanistan, far more than Iraq, appears to have um, made people rethink the role or the type of uh, mm. attitude that one has to the services, and not only publicly, but also ministerially. That's right. And, I mean, we, we, we talk privately about the so-called Wooten Bassett effect, you know, these, these mm. uh, rather touching ceremonies in Wooten Bassett when everyone comes out onto the street. Mm -hmm. But I can also tell you that, that some people in the ministry and the armed forces and the army are really quite worried about this because it portrays the army as victims of government policy, not the instruments of government mm. policy. And there is a, there's a real double-edged weapon. But it doesn't, John Dickey, want to get to the state the Americans got to, where they don't like television pictures of coffins returning to the, uh, to the United States. No, I think there's a great deal of admiration uh, now, quite separately from Iraq. I think in Iraq there was so much controversy over the reasons for going to war in Iraq that I think those soldiers who were carrying out government policy uh, were, in a sense, uh, part of the controversy. And now, even though there are people who wonder why uh, this war is going on in Afghanistan, they're not wondering why the British forces are there. And therefore, I think there's a great deal of respect, loyalty and admiration for them. Mm. But coming back, Mike, to today's uh, speech... It struck me, the past 12 months, the relationship between the British forces and mm. government and the MOD has been, uh, has been a surprise. Mm. That there are things that you would expect, well, of course, that's done for the services. And you discover that it's not done for the services. Mm. There was a report yesterday, for example, about uh, local authorities not realising the compensation and the treatment mm. that, um, that wounded 
soldiers yes. could get. Yes, now, exactly. that's the sort of thing that he wants to get at. Exactly. And what he was saying, I mean, he was announcing initiatives today, such as uh, he said that they would put money in, he didn't say how much money, but money into a free legal service for armed mm. service personnel um, in relation to compensation claims or inquests. So if they wanted independent legal advice, there would be this service mm. free to them. Etc. Uh, Etc. Et he talked about a, 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 an armed forces covenant with society, not the military covenant as such, but a, a wider mm -hmm. covenant, and said that they were thinking about whether there were elements of this that they could legislate for, or whether they should leave it as something else. But he and he said the underlying idea was that mm -hmm. they needed to embed again the culture of what the armed forces do for society in society. And I think he acknowledged that it, it has slipped. Mm. Um, Rosie, when you sort of look at some of the people that you deal with, and certainly in, say, let's say, the Israeli armed forces, um, all this is a given in a small Israeli defence force that you do look after people because so many of them reservists and so, so many in society understand that they've been at a, almost on a war state since 1948. Well, I think it's difficult to separate the armed forces from civilian society. After all, the kids go to school learning that the armed forces represent mm. the nation, that they do only good things for the nation, and they, <laughs> I gather they only wake up when they've done their compulsory military service. You can only get out on religious grounds of doing your military service, three years for men and two years for women, and they do that classically straight after high school. And uh, it, it's then that they realize that it may not be all that it's cracked up to be. But in addition to that, you have a tradition in Israel that serving officers will retire and go on to be politicians and to lead the government. And you had Ariel Sharon as defense minister leading the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 1982 that went all the way to Beirut and actually taking his own prime minister by surprise. Mm. Yes. But uh, yes, of course, uh, the value placed on the, the lives and the importance of the armed forces and how it represent, represents the nation. But going back to what Mike Clark has just said, in the British context, I think there was a turning against the whole notion of what the armed forces do for Britain overseas when there was a turning against the empire. And there was a, a, a scaling down of that. And then there was the security issue of not having... Uh, soldiers visible in British society for fear of IRA attacks and the combination of security concerns for the soldiers in the domestic setting and uh, wanting to be rid of all foreign commitments has been reversed at the turn of the century in part because of this this notion that it's good to intervene in other people's affairs. Yes, Martin McCauley. I was thinking that, that uh, if you look at the Labour government, if you look at any socialist government, if you look at any government left of centre in Europe, the tradition is they're always embarrassed by the military. They see the military as an instrument of coercion, which is used by uh, the people who rule society in their own instruments and so on. And Gordon Brown's a classic case where he was to the left and he's been forced to, mm. if you like, identify and go to Afghanistan and say to the troops, you're doing a great job and so on, and it must stick in his gullet. Because ideally, he would like to have no military. Why do we have a military? Why do we have do a military? Do you think that's true? Uh, mm -hmm. From a socialist point of view, you don't really want a military. You want uh, a home defence force, but you don't want it intervening uh, abroad uh, and acting in the interests of some other state. For instance, in the United States, you don't uh, do the bidding of the United States and so on. For a socialist, that's deeply embarrassing.
Right. And it's also a, a, a means of social mobility in the United States. And uh, it's very useful in terms of uh, rising up the echelon in, in civilian society in Israel. Mm. I don't know how it works in China, because that's mm. the other people's army, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, but they are slimming down now. And what the people's army is trying to do is to recruit those with technical qualifications, get them from the universities, and bring them in and gradually establish, if you like, uh, a technocratic military and get rid of all the officers and men who are just foot soldiers. Right, let's talking mm. about um, intervening mm -hmm. and going to other people's wars. Uh, the Iraq inquiry, chaired by Sir John Kilcott, ended its first term of evidence taken this week. Uh, four weeks of inquiry that brought public appearances of the people who were closest to the decision to go to war in Iraq, uh, minus Tony Blair, uh, and those who were there at the start. Directors of policy, MI6, the uh, GIC, ambassadors and generals. A cast, if not of thousands, then a cast that represented thousands of servicemen and women, given the job of executing a war that we still don't know if it was legal. Watching for the war four weeks, the BBC World Service political correspondent Rob Watson um, the four weeks, Rob, gives a theme or gives an appearance of huge doubts of, A, what was going on, and still uh, mm -hmm. the legality of the whole thing. A absolutely. So you wouldn't be surprised that at least one commentator said, well, why didn't all these civil servants and clever officials and intelligence folk and the odd general uh, say to the Prime Minister, maybe this isn't a very good idea? Maybe so they did. <laughs> Well, it, I, I know that it's a complaint amongst people at a certain rank, at the sort of major colonel rank. You know, why on earth didn't, uh, you know, wasn't uh, truth spoken unto power? I know that's certainly a very strong feeling about Iraq. Mm -hmm. I, I suspect you're right and, and that it was and that it's just a question of how you mm -hmm. interpret these things. It's pretty clear one of the, one of the obvious themes that has emerged from, from the hearings is, look, there are an awful lot of very smart people in both our intelligence, foreign office, and military services, he thought, okay, you know, Saddam is a threat, and uh, yes, it, you know, the U.S. is a close ally. Maybe it does mm. make sense to go ahead with this. Mm. But what about this, and what about that, and what about the post-reconstruction? Mm. What about the legality? I mean, clearly, a, a lot of questions were answered. But, but at the end of the day, you know, we do have a system where uh, that the elected politicians' word is final. Mm. I suppose it's quite unique, wasn't it? Uh, this, this, this four-week period. I mean, I can't think when we have seen or been able to see, two uh, controllers of MI6, the SIS, actually giving evidence and being quizzed, or even seen them. Uh, well, absolutely, and I, I certainly found it pretty gripping. I mean, of course, that hasn't really been, has it, that the broad media reaction in this country, which is to say, oh, well, here they are, all, all a bunch of men in, in, in grey suits, no women testifying, mm -hmm. and in the end... The questioning, according to the critics, has, has all been rather kind of soft and, and easy and rather kind of collegiate. And again, as I've said before, I, I think we have to look, reserve judgment a bit on this until the final report comes and until we see uh, the former Prime Minister himself being questioned. Got any stars of the four mm. weeks? You know, I have to be super careful about that. Of course you do. I, mm. I don't, <laughs> but you never without, are. Without wishing to sound too collegiate myself, I mm. know an awful lot of the people... Uh, who've been testifying. OK, let me give through. you one. Freddie Vigors. Well, I, I'm, he, I'm afraid he falls into the category of... Uh, I wasn't going to say friend of Rob. It's more like friend of Freddie. He's, he's the star, not, uh, not anybody else. No, I, I mean, I thought he was very frank, but, I mean, others have been, uh, others have been pretty frank, too. I mean, uh, General Fry, General Sir Robert Fry, was pretty frank, saying, 
you know, in the period after the invasion of Iraq, he had asked for he'd asked for extra resources, but basically there was no one in White, no one in Whitehall, uh, who wanted to do that, and in the end, Whitehall won. <coughs> okay, Rob Watson, thank you very much indeed. Uh, John Dickey, uh, your chum, uh, Rod Lyons, Sir Roderick Lyon, bit of a star. He knew all the answers to all the questions he's asked for the, during the past four weeks. Yes, but what I find extraordinary about the last four weeks is that the greatest revelation came not from the inquiry, but from a BBC broadcast. Fern Britton, a chat show hostess, interviewing Blair and getting Blair admitting that a change of regime was the real purpose of going to war. I find that a lot of the questioning was, uh, as Rob was saying, soft, and some would say unchallenging. But for me, uh, the revelation from the inquiry that interested me greatest was uh, that of Sir Hilary Sinat, a very senior um, diplomat who was sent out for the immediate uh, uh, post-invasion situation, the Office of uh, uh, Rehabilitation Human Rights Agency, and he arrived on a day when he wanted to report back and had no telephone. He couldn't even have a, a computer. He had to borrow one from the Americans and eventually send his reports back via Washington or otherwise go on to Google. Mm. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. The chaos that was there, there was no planning, no organisation at all for what happened immediately after the invasion. Mike Clark, your impressions of four weeks? It hasn't told us anything that we didn't believe <coughs> beforehand, but it, it is the nearest thing we will now have to an official history. Mm -hmm. And I don't see mm -hmm. in, in 20 years' time or so, when official histories start to be written, they won't come up with anything else, because mm -hmm. the Chilcot Commission, they've read all the documents or are reading them, they've interviewed everyone who is around. What they will produce, and I'm sure they will do it competently, mm -hmm. because if you look at the composition, you've got very competent historians mm -hmm. on this commission. They will produce the official history, and they'll produce it sometime <coughs> next year. So it is fascinating. And, and what the commission has done, for, for me, <coughs> is, is provided chapter and verse for what we always believed, that this was a, you know, a well-planned military operation on a very shaky political premise, with unfathomable incompetence at the, end, at the end of the invasion process. When you say the official history, is it going to tell it as the officials in Whitehall saw it? Oh. Or as the politicians <clears throat> yeah. wished it Yes, to I'm, be I'm not saying this will be the definitive history, but <clears throat> anyone, who, anyone else who writes the history of the Iraq war will end up with the same sources and probably fewer interviews than they'll have done on Chilcot. So other histories will be different interpretations of the evidence. But, but this, the Chilcot Commission will see every bit of evidence that an official historian would see. Whether they do it well or not, we'll... Well, we'll, well I, I see them in a, in a court in a bind because they, <clears throat> they know and like the armed forces. Um, <laughs> they, they know and like the officials, and they know and like, or did the politicians who were in command in 2003. But I don't well, think some of them you can please them all of them. Get their yeah. jobs, they? Oh, yeah. No, there may, there may be, in, the, in their report, they may produce a rather soft, focused conclusion. Mm. I suspect not, but, I mean, they may do. But the, the, the basis of, of that soft focus, if that's what it is, will be all of the information. Now, somebody else might come along, use the same information, come to a, a much more harsh conclusion. But well, nobody, think, nobody will have better yeah. information than they have got. I don't think we've got the truth at all, because the whole business is that the inquiry's been held not under oath. And when one watched John Scarlett talk, he was so evasive. I know he's going to have a further session in private, but will we get the real truth about the dossier? He talked about making one or two amendments to the foreword, which came from Prime Minister Blair, but he did not clarify whether 
this was a question of munitions or a question of missile with the weapons mm. of mass destruction, which didn't really exist. But, I mean, if they had existed, were they going to be available by via missile or, or battlefield uh, weapons? He was terribly evasive on this. Martin? Yeah, I think various things have come out of it. Um, uh, one is that uh, it was mm. a political decision. It was not a military decision. They wanted regime change, mm. and therefore they decided that. Mm. And it's the, if you like, the end of the American imperialist mm. dream they can intervene and, and uh, effect change. Secondly, the war itself was okay. It was well fought and so on. But thirdly, the greatest weakness was mm -hmm. there was no post-war planning. Mm -hmm. They got rid of the Bathurst mm -hmm. regime, they got rid of the civil servant, they didn't use any military officers and, and so on. And if you like, that is the, mm -hmm. the greatest mistake. And the Americans were, were warned about it, they were told about it, and Rumsfeld and all this. Well, the, yes, no. one of the most interesting no. things coming out is the extent of the irritation mm. and frustration with what the Americans were doing and mm. whether they were being heard or not. Yeah. But that's you, no you surprise think... to any of us in, in this mm. business. What, mm. what this provides is a bit more backup to what we all mm. heard and gossiped about at the time. Yes, it's quite well, I think that's true across the board, yes, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. It's quite extraordinary. The Americans learned nothing from Vietnam. Yeah. You'd think that every war college would study mm. Vietnam and they'd study the Soviet experience in Afghanistan. What did we, what did we get wrong? Right? But we've we seen from this inquiry that, that one witness after another said that we didn't learn the lessons of that chaos <laughs> after the invasion in Iraq. We haven't learned them in Afghanistan. This is the appalling aspect of the whole inquiry. This was General yeah. Figgis who was... Yes. Mike, mm. can I take mm. you further on something you said, and that was the, uh, the fact that the people in the business, people like you, people around this mm. table sort of had gossiped about all this. We sort of vaguely knew mm. what was going on and some, in some cases really did know. Um, I'd almost suggest that this inquiry is not for you. This inquiry is for a general public mm. who will be able to see and read and feel, I think, perhaps a bit uneasy that the fact that we're supposed to be the first 11, we're supposed to be the good guys... And in fact, we were apparently rather incompetent mm. about going to war against a fifth-rate mm. uh, organisation. I think that's absolutely right. Mm. I mean, as Martin said, that you know, th this inquiry was always a political exercise, mm. um, and as a political exercise, it was something. It's to, it's to sort of clear the air to <coughs> to, to try and put an end to the conspiracy theories. And what it will do is put back in front of the public, in a rather, I guess, mm. dramatic and probably fairly precise way the questionable nature of that whole enterprise that we now call the Iraq War. Yeah. And the history books, the history books will be negative. You can guarantee it. Yes. They will come out very mm. hard. If I were writing about it, I would really lay into Blair uh, and also the post-war lack of post-war planning, a lack of expertise in the Middle East, uh, and they'd learn nothing from Vietnam, Afghanistan. You could write all that and say, so but the uh, the other point I've is, just done it, by in the this way. country, mm. in this book country, comes out in January. <laughs> in this country, good, mm. you've got ahead of me. In this country, it's now going to be very difficult in the future to go to war because even if the prime minister uh, brings uh, produces evidence, this is absolutely unimpeachable. It is it cannot be challenged and so on. So the average person mm. said, "We've heard that before." Mm. No, we well, heard that in Iraq. Well, Why I mean, should we believe you now? Yes, I mean, Falklands is about the only war that we're mm. pretty sure mm. of. And this, historically, this is the millstone round Blair's neck for the next 50 or 100 mm. years. I mean, uh, this, the, Whatever else he may be responsible mm. for in British politics over 10 years of, of government, mm. he will go down as the Prime Minister yeah, who took us into it's, Iraq. It's the only thing uh, every five-year-old would remember about Tony Blair. Mm. It's but that was known before the inquiry. It's right. just, no, uh, no, the, as, no, as Michael was saying, no. it's... It, it, 
reconfirms all these suspicions that we had before, but I think there hasn't been enough incisive questioning to get much more detail into establishing what we already knew. I think the the average Mm. person, uh, the the member of the public, isn't really concerned about that. Because he or she has the picture, has a general picture The average Brit is different now, or the the, the sum total of the average Brits Mm. is different now from what it was... 20, 30, 40 years ago because of immigration and because of the bringing up mm. of first generation kids and they're some of the ones that mm. have been most irritated by mm. the whole Iraq adventure and I see that turning a corner after Iraq is going to be mm. essential if the whole British public is to feel that they own the British armed mm. forces and that the British government is really representing them in its policies abroad. I think we have to close this chapter, otherwise it's not good for the social-military mm. relations. Can I just um, wonder whether, in fact, for what we've seen in the four weeks, or heard in the four weeks, really is the prelude to the trial of Tony Blair? That's what it's leading yeah. up to. <coughs> I mean, everything mm. that we've heard officially <coughs> makes the mm. questioning of Tony Blair more and more mm. acute. And if I were him... I would, my heart would be sinking day mm. by day because he will be the scapegoat. Mm. But actually, it, it is, it's not just a scapegoat because it is his responsibility. But he, again, will say, I believed it. Uh, he's that type of person who has mm. such self-belief. And he, was he would say, divide, saying, would you rather given. have Saddam Hussein still in power or him gone? And this is a, a benefit to everybody, even yeah. though it cost a lot of lives. And then he, um, he uh, will twist the whole basis. Yeah. And he ignores the million dead mm. and the millions mm. uh, of refugees and all the rest. And he will say, I was justified in doing it because I believed in it and he had the evidence. But you see, you notice he said in his interview that uh, Saddam was a menace to the region based on the fact that he used chemical weapons against his own population. Now that was in 1989. Mm. How come he didn't come into office, Tony Blair, in 1997 saying, we've got to get this guy because he's a danger to the neighbourhood because of what he did in the 1980s? Because we couldn't do it by ourselves. He also mentioned the Islamist extremism, and though he didn't say religion was part of it, it was an undertone. What do we make of uh, Mm. Sir Ken MacDonald, the um, Mm. former director of public prosecutions? I've got some things he said. He said that Tony Blair... Mm engaged in, and I quote, an alarming mm-hmm. subterfuge with George Bush mm-hmm. because he was, quoting still, mm-hmm. lost in self-aggrandisement and that he couldn't resist the mm-hmm. glamour of Washington. He's hit the nail on the head mm-hmm. because if you look at the smile on Tony Blair's face, you know, he mm-hmm. loves power, he loves being at the pinnacle mm-hmm. and so on. And George mm-hmm. Bush... But don't all prime ministers love that? No, no, mm-hmm. no, no, no. Some prime ministers more, more or less... George Brown likes Margaret it. About Grenada, yes, but uh, Chris Mayer in his interview uh, the, with the inquiry, he did bring out the fact that, that there was this sense of uh, closeness that was being encouraged and yet there was no payback for Blair. Blair could have used much more influence back on mm. Bush. If he had chosen to do it. A lot of people have said that, said Margaret Thatcher Mm. would never have let Bush get away with taking taking her for granted Mm. in the way that Blair was taken for granted. Wilson didn't, did he? Mm. No. No. Different relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, I want to go to uh, talk about uh, Northern Ireland because I suppose Mr Blair, if if this is his legacy, he would see his legacy, or one of them, as the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland. Mm. Um, The agreement between Republicans and Loyalists, Mm. others involved, but that's the shorthand. Mm. 
that brought an end to the conflict that had bloodied the streets and people of that province from 69 to 98. But all is not peaceful. On the line from Belfast, Chris Ryder. Uh, Chris, thanks for joining us. Um, there was uh, last week, in fact, last Friday, um, two men taken into an alleyway in, uh, in London Derry's Craggan and shot in the legs. It's... Um, vigilantes were apparently responsible. Nothing has changed, has it? Well, you have to look at the context of it. Um, uh, both in Republican and Loyalist areas, um, there are uh, gangs uh, that uh, owe as much to criminality as to patriotism, and uh, they're trying to uh, rule the areas, um, and, and people that get in their way or stand up to them are, are punished in that old way. Um, this is Republican and Derry, are opposed to the police and, and, and the Sinn Féin support for the police, and they're trying to create a rule of terror to uh, discourage Catholic people from supporting the police and, and reporting information to them. And they're also trying to demonstrate to the local community that they're more effective than the PSNI. Uh, there's something similar going on in loyalist areas at the same time, and uh, the police are uh, in, uh, in great difficulty in, in keeping up with that. Um, there's been a feeling on the part of the police to implement those parts of the pattern report that relate to community policing. And that has been aggravated in recent months by the increase in the dissident threat where the police are having to move very cautiously in precisely those sorts of areas. So uh, there's, a, there's a problem. Uh, the new Chief Constable, Matt Baggett, um, has uh, promised that he will clear police officers out of offices who are working there. Uh, and there's about 600 of them uh, those jobs will be given to civilians. He wants more police on the streets. And he has also uh, promised that he will uh, tighten up red tape so that uh, the police officers who currently spend up to 60% of their time in offices doing paperwork uh, will be out on the beat for the whole of their shifts. So uh, you can see that uh, reaction to that already because he has more police officers in the streets already over Christmas in virtually all the towns and certainly in Belfast. And uh, there's this battle for hearts and minds going on, as there always has been. Yeah. So policing remains one of the most controversial subjects here. Chris, tell me, is this a thuggery of people with no jobs and status other than <laughs> terrorism, or is it old-style national fervour? No, I, I think it's more to do with criminality. Uh, I mean, they were the cloak of dissident Republicans, and they also were the cloak of loyalists on the other side. But uh, the, 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 you'll find that these people... Are, are, are attacking potential drug dealers or potential small criminals or things of that sort, and that's what they use as the justification. It is vigilantism to some extent, but it has a, it has a, a wider um, umbrella uh, in Northern Ireland. Uh, it's just not simply uh, well-meaning uh, uh, vigilantism, if one could say that. It's, it's more related to um, enforcing uh, the dissident or the, the loyalist uh, authority and keeping other people out of their criminal records. Chris Ryder, thank you very much indeed. Uh, let's shift uh, regions, Iran. Rosie, uh, this week the word is that mm. Iran has for two years been working on a four-year mm. plan to test a neutron initiator. Uh, a neutron initiator makes a nuclear warhead go bang. Um, their is brinksmanship this, is this, Is this when we get scared, is it? <clears throat> Uh, I think we we should be scared even without that because uh, they've just their method of diplomacy at the moment is uh, to really up the ante and they've just test fired another missile which could certainly hit Israel and could reach mm -hmm. Europe and so uh, it's winding up the Israelis as well. 
It's winding up the Israelis and, and thinking about it. It's an invitation for a preemptive strike because they say that this missile is for retaliatory capability in order to deter a strike on them to take out their nuclear program. I'm also bemused by the fact that the US Congress, the House of Representatives, has just passed its draft of a bill that will tighten mm -hmm. <coughs> sanctions on companies doing business with Iran, especially mm -hmm. companies supplying them with... Uh, petroleum, refined petroleum, which they can't provide themselves with, even though they've got plenty of crude, because they haven't got enough refining capacity. What have they been doing these last four or five years? Who, the building Iranians? The Iranians mm. building, building this stocks. civil nuclear, alleged civil nuclear power, when they could be building refineries. Yeah, except that they want to sell the oil, because that keeps the economy going. Mm. Yes, but you don't then want to re-import. They, they don't have enough refining capacity for their own domestic needs. Yeah, but the object, objective of Ahmadinejad and the present Iranian regime is to dominate the Middle East. In other words, if you have a nuclear weapon, you become a big player. I'm always, always concerned uh, of the behavior of the Iranians, mm -hmm. where it is de deliberately provocative. Do they believe that China mm -hmm. and Russia will protect them? Do they, are they, have they done deals with China and Russia which says, right, we will ensure that nothing really bad happens to you. I think there's an element of a deal in there, and certainly the Chinese mm. are calculating their energy needs above and ab beyond uh, Israel's concerns about defence. But I also would say that, sure, Ahmadinejad uh, wishes to be a regional hero, and he has been hitherto, but what he's losing is the home front, and we've got very dangerous instability on the home front, which means that it's not clear whether increased pressure on Iran in order to stop their nuclear program or change the direction will actually work to the benefit of Ahmadinejad. Mike, tell me something. Um, we keep hearing these stories. We keep waiting for the Israelis to say, no, we're going to have a go at them, mm. etc. Does anybody at your organisation, Royal United Services Institute, or the people that come to the RUSI, have they actually sat down and said, yes, we think this is a real threat, two, we think the Israelis will have a go, mm. uh, and three, do we actually understand the consequences? No to the first two, mm. and probably yes to the third one. That is, the, the, the view is, no, the Israelis can't do it. They pretend that they can, and they train for bits of it, and they think about air-to-air -air refueling and so on. They've got two squadrons on standby to do this thing. But no, they can't. And the Americans could but won't uh, because everyone has thought about the consequences, which would be huge. Um, and so that whatever we think about the Iranian uh, case, the, the prospect of an attack, is, it never goes away. And it's, it's on the table as part of the negotiating package. As Rosalie says, it's part of the brinkmanship. But it, it's technically not feasible for the Israelis. It is feasible for the Americans, but, but outside <clears throat> of their realistic planning process. So in theory... Uh, for Iran, read North Korea. Yes, yes. No, North Korea is quite different. Well, they haven't got because Israel's neighbour, mind you. so poor, and now the Chinese have done a deal with it, apparently. Well, the Iranians well, are pretty poor, aren't no, they? No, 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 no. Um, well, they're in bad economic mm. shape. It's North, not Korea quite is, the same. North Korea has the weapons, and the Chinese will make sure they don't use it, and they've done a deal, mm. because the Prime Minister Wen Jiabao was there recently, and apparently the deal was to provide food and other essential uh, goods and so on to keep North Korea afloat. So, presumably now, North Korea has become a vassal state mm -hmm. of China. But, but that's but true. Sanctions a, a have been proved, but sanctions have never proved to have any great effect, either in South Africa 
or in Zimbabwe, and therefore uh, the Iranians can just uh, laugh at that. Western uh, policy is mm -hmm. to play for time, mm -hmm. hoping that something mm -hmm. changes inside yeah, Iran that yeah. makes the situation easier. Yes. But none of us can see what that would be, even regime change in Iran. Mm -hmm. Nobody in Iran does not want to, to be nuclear capable. But threats of sanctions just strengthen the regime, and yes. they can say we're, we're standing for a, a patriotic yeah, maybe, right. Maybe one of the reasons why there's so much brinkmanship is mm. because the domestic situation is so tense mm. that the government wants to concentrate mm. everyone behind them. So if we yeah. go along to Chilcot, as we've done in the past four weeks, and we go mm. along the next four weeks probably, we'll just see how good we are at handling this mm. sort of situation, mm. won't we? Eh? <laughs> um, hmm. It's a question of when, not if, but when could Britain withdraw from Germany? Not so easy as it looks, even if the next government, whatever its persuasion, wanted to. Down at Westminster in the House of Commons, there's one group of MPs with more than a casual interest in the future of the UK and Germany. They form the House of Commons Defence Committee. Parliament's watchdog over the MOD. Now, the HCDC holds inquiries. It points out faults in the MOD, in the services, in ministers, in the service people. Um, it's not really uh, come off it minister stuff, and it's not really yes minister stuff, if you see what I mean. And probably, you probably do. Um, the HCDC's chairman is the former Tory Defence Procurement Minister, James Arbuthnot. And I've been talking to him about Britain's deployment in Germany, about procurement, and also, it seems, about the death of Frez. I started by asking the, who decides the HCDC investigations. Um, we try to cover a wide range of different types of inquiry. So we'll do one every year on equipment. We'll do one every year on the report and accounts. We might do one on very big stuff, like the future of NATO. Uh, we, might, we might do one on more welfare stuff, like the education of service children or the health needs of the armed forces, that sort of thing. Uh, we try to cover an agency during the course of a year. Uh, so we try to cover the gamut, uh, but it's up to us to choose what we, what we look into. Um, I was describing, uh, describing the HCDC as a sort of watchdog on behalf of the armed forces because, in fact, your, the, your dog is watching the MOD fundamentally, isn't it? Yes, our job is watching the MOD, but it's not on behalf of the armed forces, although uh, I... Nobody else is. I, no, but I get very pleased when the armed forces think that we are the spokesman, but actually we are the spokesman on, uh, of the country holding the Ministry of Defence to account. Um, and if the armed forces are not doing the right thing, then it is our job to say so, uh, and we do. And uh, so we have a parliamentary job to report to Parliament Parliament is only mildly interested, frankly, because there is too little expertise within Parliament on defence matters. This, that reflects the diminution in the expertise in, on defence matters in the country as a whole, because the armed forces have got so small in size now that very few people in the country know what's going on. But... Uh, the purpose of the Defence Select Committee is to report to Parliament about what the Ministry of Defence is doing and also to report to the wider country to spread the knowledge. The, the days of the gallant member, I seem to remember an MP being called and referred to as a gallant member, yes, they may have gone, but there is still quite an interest and there are a few people, and you've got them on your committee, 
who have uh, served either in the reserve forces or in the uh, full-time forces? Yes, uh, we have um, one former serving soldier uh, from the Grenadier Guards, Adam Holloway. We have uh, a former serving, I think he was in the military police, John Smith, he may, or may have been the uh, RAF police. Uh, there are members with considerable constituency interests in, in the armed forces. Robert Key, for example, the MP for Salisbury, uh, and the, uh, has, the, has the largest army garrison in his constituency. Linda Gilroy has the Plymouth uh, Naval Base. Mike Hancock has Portsmouth in his constituency. So there are all sorts of defence interests within the committee. I've got RAF Odium, the Chinook base, in my constituency, which is why uh, why I suppose we are all uh, interested in the, inter in, in the subject in the first place. You've got Bernard Jenkin, haven't you? Bernard Jenkin, Bernard Jenkin, Colchester, uh, with the Armoured Brigade there, and uh, he's been Shadow Secretary of State for Defence. Uh, we have we have a lot of deep interest in the armed forces in the, on the committee. Doesn't make us necessarily experts. We have expert advisors to help us with that, but we have the interests of defence and of the country at our heart. I mean, with your with the task of monitoring the MOD, fundamentally, that's what you're doing. Uh, get the impression the MOD doesn't get a very good press, does it? It, it? Every time I see a report, whether it's from you or the uh, PAC or Public Accounts Committee or whatever, it's the MOD is getting a hammering over something, usually procurement. Yes, it is usually procurement, um, but I was very pleased that the former Secretary of State, John Hutton, got Bernard Gray to do a report into procurement to try to get to the bottom of why it was that it was so often that defence projects were overpriced, delayed, producing less of the equipment than was originally envisaged, able to do less. Uh, why is it that defence procurement is so difficult? And he produced an extremely good report, which I think the Ministry of Defence wanted to publish immediately, but which I think Downing Street tried to, tried to suppress. Um, this was something that we always try to go into every year and uh, we're in the middle of a defence procurement inquiry at the moment. We had Quentin Davis in front of us yesterday. You've had, I mean, this, this particular week, um, uh, Quentin Davis who was saying that there's going to be uh, an announcement about the reform of procurement. There's always an announcement about the reform of procurement. I seem to remember Michael Heseltine in the early 1980s, saying exactly that when he brought in Peter Levine to try and sort it, and yet it was terribly difficult to do. Yes, and when I was Defence Procurement Minister, it's quite interesting, incidentally, having uh, in front of the committee a man who's doing the job that I used to do. I, uh, When I was in that job, I began the beginnings of what became Smart Procurement, um, and smart procurement was brought in uh, for uh, in full measure in 1997, 1998, but then only bits of it were actually implemented. And so, 
what what one has to recognize about the Ministry of Defense is the huge uh, vested interests that return methods and matters to the status quo. It the inertia of the building of that ministry is phenomenal. It's not down to any one person or any group of people or even any class of people in the Ministry of Defence. It, it will just take an extraordinary talent and energy to overcome that inertia. There were moments when I thought that Lord Drayson might actually achieve a reworking of defence procurement because he had extraordinary talent and energy. Now that he's only devoting a small proportion of his ministerial time to the job, I'm not sure that it's going to be achievable. But if the Bernard Gray report can be put properly into effect, um, then I think there will be huge benefits to be gained. However, we must recognise that the forces of inertia and the forces of darkness will be working against it incredibly strenuously for uh, the next couple of years, and so we'll see what comes out. But it does seem, still seem daft to the outsider that such simple decisions sometimes, you know, whether you or not you buy off the shelf or you develop your own because of industry or because of uh, trust, whether you can get spares in time of crisis, etc., why that isn't resolved. It's such a simple idea, and most people in commerce would tell you that. Um, yes, but most people in commerce do not have to face the pressures that the Ministry of Defence has to face. It's not a simple uh, dilemma at all, that. If you buy off the shelf, you get stuff that is cheaper, that is often very good, usually from America, that does things uh, that you need to be done now. And that's like an, the Chinooks. Like the Chinooks. That's, that's an advantage. But you also fail to get often the knowledge of precisely how that com- that equipment works like the Chinooks mm. for example and it sat there for ages because we couldn't sort the software yes um, and if you buy equipment from America nowadays it is against American law for them to tell us some of the American secrets that allow that equipment to be uh, operated in a way that we might want to do so you have to make a choice between doing that or, alternatively, going for equipment from British or European or occasionally other continents' uh, manufacturers, which is often more expensive, often slower, but it allows you to do what you need to do to understand the equipment. It also allows you to have an alternative uh, supplier in case the Americans decide to take up all the capacity of their factories, as has happened, for example, with night vision goggles. We uh, had been buying equipment, night vision goggles, from the Americans. Suddenly they decided they wanted 50,000 copies of the same, the same thing. For the next two years, we weren't able to buy any. And uh, that's something that is very serious. I mean, there's an example there in, in aircraft, the originally the MRCA that became the Tornado, a European-built aircraft, was vastly more expensive because it was a collaborative project. Typhoon, Eurofighter, exactly the same sort of project, where we can't have our own def- uh, aircraft industry, we can't support it any longer. So we don't actually have any options but to pay a lot of money. Yes, and we, we could have solved that 
by buying by buying aircraft only from the United States. If we had done that, uh, we might have got some aircraft cheaper. We might have been able to get it sooner in greater quantities. We would have destroyed the uh, defence industry of the country, I suspect, and that uh, defence industry is very valuable to the United Kingdom in all sorts of different ways. First, it uh, allows us to uh, exercise influence abroad for the good of the world and of our country. It allows us to export equipment to other countries to allow them to defend themselves. We believe that we should be allowed to defend ourselves and other countries should have that same right. Um, so it's not a bad thing to be an arms seller, provided those armaments actually go to people who've got a legitimate use for them. The defence industry is absolutely vital in the supporting the science and technology base of this country. It is really valuable to have a vibrant defence industry, which we ought not to belittle or to diminish. Or to neglect defence sales, and the profit comes from it. Or to neglect defence sales. I was very worried, for example, when the uh, Prime Minister decree the Defence Export Services Organisation ought to be removed from the Ministry of Defence and put into what was then the Department for Trade and Industry. Um, actually, it has not been quite as damaging because of the phenomenal work of the people in that organisation as it might have been. But I, I do think that it was um, driven by a misunderstanding of the value of defence exports. There's another side of this, isn't there? And that is the way that it's very difficult to change a pace of if you like strategy or even policy. Thinking uh, this week, for example, with the announcement that bits of um, Kinloss are going to be perhaps mothballed and there's something hanging over Lossiemouth um, and Lucas. Uh, these are places which were really for the Cold War and with the quick reaction um, uh, squadrons in, at, at Lucas, etc. Maybe we actually don't need... And that's that sort of thing, and that's why the defence review is going to probably change not so much who gets what, but the way we think. Uh, maybe that's right, but uh, if we abandon all the bases on the northernmost borders of the United Kingdom and uh, Russia's ambition, as I see it, to recreate the Soviet Union is realised, we might find it takes a very long time to build up again the sort of capability that we have up there uh, at the moment. And so one of the troubles is that all defence procurement and basing decisions are very long-term things. The change of intentions uh, and activities of a country can happen very quickly indeed. And the purpose of defence is to defend the country against contingencies, the sort of things that one cannot predict at the time that one takes the decisions. Um, so what worries me now is that we are shifting the balance of defence spending very much towards the uh, needs of our forces in Afghanistan. Yes, we need to do that, of course, but uh, if we abandon the wars of the future, the long-term defence of the country, we may desperately regret it in time to come. So you can't just have an asymmetric war thinking. You've got to almost go back 
and say, look, we ought to have a reserve plan, which is almost the sort of plan we would have had in the Cold War. Well, we've got to move on from Cold War thinking, certainly. Um, But we've got to remember the entire purpose of defence. We've got to change our thinking. And my view is that we've got to remind the country of the value of defending your own interests. We see uh, now that the the goods in our shops, we've got about three or four days' uh, supply for most things. Food, probably three or four days, I would guess. Um, And so if the supply routes of this country are not defensible, then a real concern is what happens to everything we normally buy. Um, And so my view is that we ought to be able to defend those supply routes. At the moment, we'd find that very difficult. Yes, well, the Navy would agree with you, because what is it, 90% of supplies, overseas supplies, have to come by sea. But at the moment, because we're fighting war in Afghanistan, essentially, we're thinking army. And that's quite right at the moment, isn't it? But that's short term. It is short term. And we're thinking army because that's all we can afford to do. Um, And it's all we can afford to do because we are spending only just over 2% of our gross domestic product on the defence of our interests. And that's a level of spending that we were last down to in the 1930s, in the early 1930s. We know what that led to, led to the Second World War, because people thought we no longer believed that it was necessary to defend our interests. We no longer had the self-confidence to do that. Um, I believe that people are going to draw the same conclusions about us now unless the country wakes up to the sort of thing that we're facing. One of the things that this balance between Cold War and, uh, well, not necessarily Cold War, but post-war thinking and uh, the sort of stuff that's going on in Afghanistan is that you can't just move, you can't just change course. You've got, for example, the, the British Army in, in Germany. And when uh, Liam Fox, um, the Conservative defence spokesman, said, or thought aloud, said, well, we may have to come out of there. Uh, in fact, there wasn't a big public outcry uh, in this country anyway about that and say, yes, what are we doing there apart from somewhere to park tanks? Is that the sort of thinking that your committee is going to have to look at in the future? Well, it's the sort of thinking that we already do. We examine the future of NATO, for example, in one of our uh, more recent inquiries. Um, and yes, we have been to Germany on at least one occasion during this parliament to look at what they're doing there. Uh, it's actually easier said than done to pull out of Germany because first we need accommodation in which to put the the troops who are coming back from Germany, accommodation in this country. And it is being built, but yesterday in the defence announcement we heard that there was going to be a reduction in the amount of money spent on the defence estate. So that accommodation will not be so readily available. Second, you need somewhere to, for the troops to train. Germany, the German planes, are uh, a very good place to do that, and the German farmers are somehow used to having their crops destroyed. Uh, when, and paid for. And paid for, and they, they, they like that bit of it, uh, when, our, when our troops exercise there. Uh, the, the fact remains that the amount of training and exercising we've been able to do with the Germans has been diminished to very little indeed, and it looks as though it's going to be diminished even further. 
It's uh, James Arbuthnot, the chairman of the House of Commons Defence Committee. Uh, by the way, next Thursday we'll be asking, what do you want for Christmas? I mean, you know, not socks, but how about Merlins, Typhoons, astute submarines, etc.? Four o'clock Thursday next week. Join us then, will you? Uh, I'm fascinated, uh, Mike Clark, this idea of Germany. Uh, it's <coughs> Are we going to? We'll have mm-hmm. to come out eventually because... Why? The whole change mm-hmm. in in where we, we keep things and the size of the army and the role mm. of the army, etc. At the moment, as far as I can make out from James mm. Arbuthnot, he was saying, well, the problem is where do you book people if you do yeah. come out? I mean, we, you know, people keep saying, why do we have so many troops in Germany? Because that's where the heavy metal is. Mm. Um, if we brought the heavy metal back, <clears throat> where can we put it? As long as, ger- as the German government likes the idea of mm. allied forces stays, still stationed in Germany, <clears throat> that's still the best arrangement. Because it's cheaper, it would cost a lot more to bring them back. A lot of a lot of costs involved in in uh, pulling out the, all of the troops and the heavy metal. Uh, I was involved in in something years ago where thirty two million pounds was spent just in the Catterick area on strengthening all the roads and bridges to bring one squadron mm-hmm. back. Um, so there's huge costs involved. But if it if it becomes inappropriate in British German relations, mm-hmm. then of course. Uh, they would have to come out. You mean, in but, other but, words, it would be from the Germans who say, "Look, we, we exactly, want you exactly. for political reasons." There's no, there's no, there's no motive for the British or the British Army um, to pull out of Germany. The motive would have to come from Germany, and if that, if that were the case, then absolutely right, they would come out. But they would come out in 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 a way that restructured them so that, in effect, most of them would evaporate rather than come home. So you're thinking it's a non-starter in any uh, defence review. I think there may be some reorganisations, but anything that pulls significant units out of Germany and brings them back to the UK is going to cost quite a lot of what, money. How much does the do the British and American forces in Germany contribute to the German economy? Any idea? Uh, I don't know. Uh, That's a key, that is a key, yeah. key question. It, it matters in local politics. It certainly matters in local politics. There's enormous Germany, unemployment yes. and so on, so therefore it's a non-starter. But yeah. if Germany then turns a corner, the European Union turns a corner, and the graph goes up and there's great expansion of the economy. Yeah, but if you take something else that Arbuthnot said, he said he wanted to see the, the armed forces used more to uh, prepare to protect the lines of supply for food to the UK. And I was thinking, lines to where? Europe, probably, and it will be useful to have some uh, some gear on the ground <laughs> at the other end of the supply mm. line for when that to moment pr- comes. To protect the Sprout convoys <laughs> and the Bratwurst coming mm. westward. Now, he's talking he's talking about America, he's talking about Latin America, he's talking about Africa. Yeah. And, and he's so talking on. about maritime, actually. And, yeah. Yeah. Southeast yeah. Asia and so on. Because if you go to any market here, but it's amazing where the food comes that, from. No, but I, I thought, actually, our main trading partner is the European Union, and yeah, a good deal of our mm. food comes from the continent. So yeah. it... Uh, this business of protecting the banana trade, uh, we could be back the to renegotiated that. banana trade as well. Um, I mean, there is a point here that uh, he didn't go into, but um, the maritime, the maritime thread. Mm-hmm. He still, as chairman of the committee, he still feels that we we're in danger if we lose sight of yeah, it. Yeah, no, I think what he was expressing there is is a different view of the world mm-hmm. to the to the one that is prevalent at the moment in British thinking. That those who talk about the maritime mission of Britain think of the world as something that may well revert to ma- to major globalised mm-hmm. threats, not a World War Three, but globalised <coughs> threats, which with, with made the possibility of major war between major countries. At the moment, that's hard to foresee. Mm-hmm. But those who take a maritime view say, well, eventually we will come back to that and we will need our maritime mm-hmm. policing. But, it, but most thinking at the moment is, well, most wars will look somehow like Afghanistan. Even if they're between significant powers, they'll fight it out in, a, in an Afghanistan-esque proxy way. Yeah, but you can still fight. You can fire, for example, a, a tomahawk more easily from a, a submarine. 
So you can then, then, you, then you can from land. Yes, and if you yes, want, if yes. you want a couple of deployed airfields, yeah, yeah. then get yourself some but aircraft carriers. What I'm saying is, is that the, the those who take a ground force view of the world and those who take a maritime mm. view view of the world actually have two different visions of what the world is turning into. And yeah. I think that's fair enough. The, the, the chances of more failed states developing, I think, is quite mm. high. Mm. So we're not going to be able to deploy to every single one of them to sort them out. We, we've had a bit of trouble doing a bit more than Afghanistan lately. So uh, it may be countering piracy, and uh, I think the, the, the debate is still on as to the role of the Navy in, in yes. potentially... Well, the debate, Rosie, the debate isn't even still on. The, debate hasn't the real debate hasn't started. What role do we think we want to play in the world? What's the best way to use our forces to play this role? Well, that role? presumably is the Strategic Defence Review next year. It's not simply about metal. Yes, but, it, but, it is about who do you think we are. But when the review starts, the one thing it will not be is strategic. Any strategic thinking has got to be done now before the review starts. Any big public debates have got to be held now. Once the review starts, it'll go into... How do you have a public what, debate like that? Who does well, it? through the Green Paper. When the Green Paper no. is published when at the end, so? of January, January? end of January, that's what uh, the, the MOD say, we will then have maybe three or four months, very short time, but we should have a public debate about what do we think defence is for and are we prepared to pay for it? And if we're not, what are we going to do? But this is not take? purely a, de a defence debate. No. This is a requires a political element, otherwise you don't know what you're preparing for. It's all right to talk about the hardware you might need in 20 years' time, but unless you have a political view, political vision to see where the trouble spots may come, you're probably preparing yourself for the wrong controversy. Yeah. Yes, if you're looking for a conflict, potential conflict, you're looking at a conflict between India and China over uh, Tibet and the northern border and so on, and the Indians are very, very concerned now that they're being surrounded from a naval point of view by the Chinese. There's a pearl, uh, a string of pearls going around India, and uh, the United States is playing a minor role in Southeast Asia. Uh, is Britain going to get, is the Royal Navy going to get involved there? Not on its own. I tell you what we ought to do. We ought to reconvene uh, here, five of us, on the first week in February, because the Green Paper will be published mm -hmm. by then, yes? It will, yes. And we ought to discuss what do we want to be before we get the defence uh, review. OK? Done. Okay, we pay well. Uh, now, next week, next week it's Christmas, the time of goodwill to all men, or well, some of them anyway. Um, people relax their grips on what's going on in the world. That is not very good. Stuff happens at Christmas, as every family knows. Uh, why? What strikes me, and I suppose go back to 79, uh, Martin, when your mates, the Russians, went into Afghanistan. It does happen at Christmas, though, doesn't it? Does it? One of the reasons why it happened at Christmas was because they thought mm. that America and the West and the others would be so... Um, their noses would be in the trough and they wouldn't really notice. You know, the, the business... Well, did they? Uh, Do we know? The, the trouble was that Jimmy Carter... Not if you read Chilcott, wouldn't notice mm. anything. Well, Jimmy Carter, Jimmy Carter then was appalled because he said, mm. that invasion has changed my view of the world. And I don't, no well, he wasn't going to be there for long anyway. Mm. But, but it changed his... And he was eating his turkey and uh, he said, no, 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 thank you. He was interested in Iran then, wasn't he? Uh, anything else? I mean, I was... The other oh, thing well, is... Ceausescu, I mean, the Ceausescus were, were, mm. were, were strung up yeah. over Christmas. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Romanian Revolution happened in front of our TV screens yeah. at Christmas. And do you know what the most interesting thing about it? It still only got about three minutes on the news. It could mm. not displace the Christmas schedules. <laughs> there was a popular revolution happening in front of us mm. with the assassination of the dictator and his families, mm. and they just gave it bulletin status. Mm. Mm. Well, last year, of course, it was... Uh, I think the 27th of December that Israel went to war with Gaza mm. and a very unpleasant mm. experience that was. I don't Particularly think... Particularly for the Palestinians. Particularly <laughs> for the Gazans, yes, absolutely. But I don't think that's what they have in mind this year uh, because they haven't quite
got through the trouble they got into for doing it this time last year. OK, quickly, because we've got ten seconds, uh, five seconds each. What should we watch for this Christmas? John? Perhaps uh, something happening in Zimbabwe. I don't think Mugabe's there to stay. Mike? No <laughs> Russian gas crisis, but Ukraine is on the slide. OK. Yes, I think so. And I would look at China and India, because China sees India... Uh, they're quite determined to uh, put them down. And okay. I think what to watch for with Israel is to trigger an event in the Gulf that will trigger a lot of other conflagration. OK, that's it this week. My thanks to John Dickey, Martin McCauley, Rosemary Hollis and Michael Clark. If you missed anything, try sitrip at bfbs.com. We'll be back next week, so I tell you, what do you want for Christmas? Uh, I'm Christopher Lee. Guess what? Mary's in the hut. <laughs>